So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE. I'm Yali Avrahampour, Assistant Professor of Management at the Department of Management at London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm delighted to welcome today uh, Gillian Ted. Um, Gillian is going to talk about her marvelous new book, The Silo Effect, why putting everything in its place isn't such a great idea. This is the third time Gillian will deliver a public lecture at LSE. In 2009, she presented her book, Fool's Gold, How Unrestrained Greed Corrupted a Dream, Shattered Global Markets, and Unleashed Catastrophe. It's a book for which she won the 2009 um, Book of the Year Award at the inaugural Spears Book Award. In 2002, she discussed the state of the economy at a LSE 100 public lecture. Gillian is a U.S. managing editor for the FT, and she writes weekly columns for the uh, FT on a wide range of issues covering economics, financial, political, and social issues. And this range of topics was very salient to what she'll be talking about today. She's won a host of awards, um, uh, including Columnist of the Year in the British Press Awards in 2014, and was a recipient of the Royal Anthropological Institute March, Marsh Award in the same year. In addition, she's won the President's Medal of the British Academy in 2011, was recognized as Journalist of the Year in 2009, and Business Journalist of the Year in 2008, by the British Press Awards, and a senior financial journalist for the, for the year in 2007 for the Wincott Awards. A proud tradition because Wincott was one of our uh, foremost financial journalists for, for a while. Um, Gillian will talk about her book, The Silo Effect, today. Let me just say that I thought that this book will have many resonances for all of us. It certainly did have for me. Um, at the Department of Management, um, what we try to do is teach and research and add value by drawing on multiple social science disciplines. So we try and combine economics, psychology, sociology, and anthropology. And our view is that by understanding each one of these disciplines, we add value to how it is that we engage and try to deal with and improve the world. And this is why it is so appropriate for Gillian to join us today, because she has a PhD in cultural anthropology from Cambridge University, as she'll mention. And she'll illustrate how it is that we can uh, add value by looking at the world through an anthropological frame. She'll emphasize that, but that is in complement with the other framings that we're talking about today uh, that I mentioned. So without any further ado, um, please join me in thanking Julian uh, for joining us. Well, many thanks, Yali, for that very kind introduction. And as you say, it is indeed very appropriate that I'm giving this speech today in the management department because I know that you're very committed to what I like to call silo-busting. 
Just to get a sense of who I'm speaking with, apart from the fact I know that it's quite a hallowed place to be standing in front of pictures of Ben Bernanke and David Cameron and Sheryl Sandberg, um, how many of you in the hall are affiliated with the management department? Okay. How many of you are economists? Okay. How many of you are fellow anthropologists? Yay, that is the biggest proportion of any speeches I've given recently. That's fantastic. Um, and how many of you sort of just wandered off the street and not actually at the LSE at all? <laughs> okay, well, there we go. Great. Well, for whatever reason you've come along today, thank you very much indeed for coming along. My book, as you've heard, is called The Silo Effect. And it really sets out to answer a very simple question, which is this. Why do people in the modern world who work in institutions, and not always in institutions, who are often very bright, seem to go about doing things that are fantastically dumb? Why are we all prone to behave in ways, even when we think we're intelligent, which can sometimes be very stupid and sometimes very damaging? And it's a question that I first started asking a lot back in the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis. Because back then, as many of you know, um, it was very popular and common for people to say, well, the crisis happened because those bankers were either mad, evil, greedy, stupid, or all four. And somehow the regulators and the policymakers and all those brilliant economists who were, came from places like LSE, sometime, somehow they were either mad or stupid too. And because of that, people didn't see the scale of the risks and they did some very, very foolish things. And I used to hear my fellow journalists and politicians saying that and think to myself, well, yes, there certainly were some greedy bankers. And I dare say some of them were a bit mad or evil too occasionally. But most of the individuals I knew who worked in the financial sector were not actually mad evil. Um, they were often greedy, but they certainly weren't stupid. They were often doing things that seemed to them to make a lot of sense, at least according to the worldview that they had. And the real problem that occurred to me when I looked at finance was that the worldview that many bankers and many regulators had was unbelievably narrow, unbelievably beset by tribalism and tunnel vision. Or to put it another way, it seemed to me that the great paradox and irony of our modern age is that we live in a world where we all think that we are hyper-connected, courtesy of our cell phones, courtesy of our internet, our airplanes, our supply chain, and in some ways we are hyper-connected in the sense that shocks in our global system can flash around the world fantastically fast. And yet, even though we're connected to the system, the way we think and live and act tends to be very, very fragmented. Now, the first time I saw that happening was, in fact, in relation to the big banks. And the story that I tell in my book to illustrate this point is a story of UBS. Um, I picked on UBS because I happen to know it quite well and they rather helpfully wrote a very long report on what had got wrong with their own bank. So I was able to talk about UBS without any danger of being sued for libel because they'd said it all themselves. Um, but UBS is fascinating because it's actually quite typical of Citigroup and Merrill Lynch and others. But UBS was a bank that until 2007 and 2008 
many people thought was fantastically boring and fantastically safe and risk-averse. I mean, it comes from a country, Switzerland, which makes a virtue out of being boring, often. And it was a bank which actually had devoted a lot of energy and activity and management time to trying to manage its risks. It had 3,000 risk managers sitting inside UBS who were supposed to scour over the bank's accounts and activities, looking out for problems. And its senior managers were so determined to maintain its boring, risk-averse image that all during 2006 and the first half of 2007, they kept getting management consultants in to look at what they thought were the really obvious big risks. And they thought they were hedge funds and leveraged finance, risky lending. And it was so worried about those risks that it actually closed down its hedge fund in the summer of 2007, and it kept calling in the analysts to control its leveraged finance exposures. So it spent a lot of time worrying about risks. And the regulators were so impressed by the way the senior managers kept worrying about risks and so impressed by all those 3,000 risk managers scurrying around that the Swiss regulators kept declaring in their reports that UBS was one of the best managed banks in the world and one of the most risk-averse. And I'm not making this up. It's all in those helpful UBS reports. And then, in the autumn of 2007, it suddenly turned out, seemingly out of the blue, that UBS not only had about $50 billion worth of subprime mortgage securities on its books, which somehow the senior managers hadn't noticed, and that's a lot of things to not notice, even in a bank. But those subprime mortgage securities ended up creating about 20 to $30 billion worth of losses, which, again, is a lot of money to lose on something you hadn't noticed was there. Now, as I say, after this came to light, Swiss voters and Swiss politicians were furious. They said, those banks are stupid, mad, evil, greedy. Put them in prison. And they kept doing reports on why it happened. And what they discovered was quite remarkable. Because it turned out that there were really two or three key reasons why UBS had missed the problem. One was the fact that UBS had big, big structural silos. Quite literally, it was subdivided into bureaucratic little entities that just did not talk to each other. In particular, there was one group of traders in London who were supposedly short the US mortgage market, and there was another group of traders in New York who were massively long. And nobody in Zurich ever sat down and added up those exposures, and none of the regulators ever did that either. So there really was a big problem of the right hand not talking to the left. And just to make it worse, those 3,000 risk managers who were diligently doing their job were divided into three different groups too, and guess what? They didn't talk to each other either. So you had structural silos. But you also had what I call mental silos, or a problem of tunnel vision, or the tendency that we all have to carry around in our heads a mental map of how we like to organize the world and to put things into mental boxes and to keep them in those mental boxes and not question where they've gone. Structural silos tend to be map reinforced by mental silos. And in the case of UBS, what happened was that traditionally the accountants and the risk managers had divided the world into propriety business and client business. And they thought the first was dangerous 
and the second was pretty safe. And they also divided the world up into AAA securities, which were kind of really boring, and things like mortgage security, mortgage lending and corporate loans, which were more risky. And what happened in 2005 when things like AAA mortgage securities came up, which didn't kind of fit into any of those categories very neatly, was that very early on UBS decided it was going to chuck those securities mentally and in its accounts into the AAA bucket. And having done that, it kind of kept them there. And they got grouped together with treasuries and they got completely ignored. They were buried in plain sight because the people inside UBS had such a rigid mental map that having divided the world one way, they didn't go back and question it or try and rethink whether those boundaries actually made sense. And then last but not least, there was a social silo. There was a problem that actually the bankers inside UBS sat in a small little world where they mostly talked to people like themselves. And they didn't expect anyone from outside to peer in and didn't feel much need to actually explain what they were doing to outsiders. And so there was nobody there who was able to say, well, hang on a sec, does it make sense that you're putting subprime mortgage securities in that AAA bucket and ignoring it? Does it make sense that these guys in London who are amassing a huge position don't talk to the guys in New York who have an even bigger position? There weren't enough people to apply good old-fashioned common sense because they were beset with tunnel vision, groupthink, and silos. So UBS basically illustrated almost perfectly the problem that fascinated me, silos that exist structurally, mentally, and socially. But when I looked around the world, it was very clear to me that it wasn't just the private sector banks that had this problem. On the contrary, if you looked at the public sector, at regulators, at central banks, they reflected that fragmentation too. I mean, over in America, the regulators are incredibly fragmented. You have this alphabet soup of different agencies who, for the most part, don't talk to each other, sometimes compete. And the reason why the problems at AIG occurred was because it literally fell between the cracks. But even in institutions which are supposed to be combined, you can end up with structural silos or mental silos. And the example, again, I tell in my book is that of the Bank of England, where the problem in the Bank of England, like the Fed, like most Western central banks, was that although most people think, or most people outside central banking, or outside the walls of economies, economics departments, or outside the walls of the LSE, most ordinary people think that economics is all about money. In reality, in the second half of the 20th century, this very striking split occurred in that the rise of ideas like efficient market hypothesis and CAPM and all these ideas about economies operating in a very efficient, rational way meant that money began to get taken out of the economics equation. In particular, money began to be seen as almost being like these circuits on an electricity board, something that transmitted signals but wasn't interesting in its own right. And what that meant was that at an institution like the Bank of England, you had one group of people who were looking at the macroeconomy and monetary policy with all their wonderful models, people like Mervyn King, who, of course, is well known to many of you, who comes from very much that you know, highly respected macroeconomic tradition. 
And then you had a second group of people who were looking at the messy, muddy weeds of the financial system and all these you know, complicated subprime mortgage securities that groups like UBS were creating. And although to outsiders it looked as if those two things should be connected, in practice, inside the Bank of England, the two departments didn't always communicate. And mentally, the people who were looking at the macroeconomy didn't spend a lot of time worrying about the, the weeds of the financial system. And the people who were looking at finance, how money was actually changing its nature, didn't talk much to people who were actually trying to run monetary policy. I mean, from time to time, some people tried to connect those two separate worlds. Um, Paul Tucker, whose story I tell in my book as well, um, was one of those who tried to make suggestions like, well, if we're going to go out and analyze M4, shouldn't we try and link it to what's happening to CDOs? But he got absolutely nowhere, partly because there just was no academic research and no institutional support. And I firmly believe that one of the reasons why the Bank of England and other central banks missed so much of what was happening in the build-up to the um, credit crisis was that they couldn't see the scale of the credit bubble that was building and then couldn't understand the implosion afterwards because of that mental disconnect. But just to widen the frame, it's not just central banks that are at fault here. I mean, the media as well. I mean, most of the, journalistic, most of the journalist world, most newspapers, they were also fragmented in a way that echoed those kind of splits. Academic departments were very fragmented too. The fact you have a separate you know, department of people looking at finance and a separate people looking at economics and many academic institutions just reinforce that sense of fragmentation. But the other thing I realized as I tried to understand why it was that bright people had done really dumb things in the crisis was that it's not just a problem about finance either or financial debate or it's not just a problem about economics. Because in 2010, I moved to America. Um, until that point, I'd been running the markets team for the Financial Times in London. And I moved to America, and one of the first big stories that I had to get my group of journalists to cover was BP and the big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And my first reaction was, well, thank heavens I'm not worrying about banks anymore. You know, by that stage, I've been living, breathing, eating banks for years. I can now look at something else. And then I began to read the stories that came back from BP. And it began to strike a, a tremendous sense of deja vu. Because the story about why BP managed to have a situation where bright engineers essentially did some very dumb things in terms of creating that pollution was terribly similar to the story of, say, UBS. And so then I began to look around the rest of the world, and time and time again I saw a pattern that almost whenever a big scandal, whenever a big corporate disaster, whenever a big government disaster erupted, I found this pattern of silos again, mental, structural, and social. I mean, if you dig into the reasons, say, why the CIA and the other intelligence services failed to see the threat looming before 9-11, you see, once again, a story of silos, or as the American Intelligence Service prefers to call it, stovepipes. If you look into the story about why General Motors behaved with such incredible negligence or stupidity um, for such a long time in relation to the seatbelts, again, you see a pattern of silos. 
I mean, Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, is very, very articulate on this, that GM was a company beset by silos. If you look at, into a lot of the scandals with the NHS and all its IT procurement problems, again, there's a problem of silos there. Time and again, when you look around big institutions, you see this pattern developing, which people seem extraordinarily blind to until it's far too late. So then I started asking, well, why is it? Why is it that we are so consumed by silos in a world that we think is supposed to be hyperconnected? And what can we do about it? And when it came to the first of those questions, I dug back not so much into my journalism training, but actually into my background as an anthropologist. And those of you who, in the room who are anthropologists, and I should say it's absolutely fabulous to be amongst some other anthropologists because I promise you the vast majority of speeches I've given recently on this topic, there's maybe three of us surrounded by, you know, 120 bankers. Um, but those of you who are anthropologists will know that one of the things anthropology has spent a lot of time looking at in the last century, 150 years of its existence is a question of classification. Anthropologists tend to be fascinated by classification systems. And the reason is really very simple. Insofar as we can tell, classification is something which seemed to be a human universal. Pretty much every society that anthropologists have studied has a classification system of some sort. Classification is culture in a way, and culture is classification. Or if you like, Culture are, is all about the mental maps, the social maps that we all carry around in our heads and absorb from people around us, which creates a shared understanding about how we're going to arrange the world. And it's really out of that classification system that silos develop. Because essentially when we classify the world, we create these boxes, these mental and social and spatial boxes, which can become very rigid and then turn into silos. Now, it's very easy to understand why we classify, because actually, if you think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, we're all surrounded by so much information, so many people, so many processes, that we have to classify. If we didn't, we would drown in chaos. I mean, in some ways, the fact we classify is a bit like the fact that we need to sort out our you know, sock drawer. You, know, you can just tip all your clothes on the floor and leave them in a the pile, um, or you can actually put them into drawers and try and keep them tidy. And we all know that putting them into drawers, into their assigned space, is basically what makes life more efficient. Or at least that's what I think every morning when I get up and I can't find my stuff. <laughs> but the key point is, putting things into their place, into a pattern, is what people need to do to make life more efficient, particularly when societies get big, when processes get complex, where technology becomes more and more specialist or hard for everybody else to understand. It's endemic, it's hardwired. But although the process of classification is universal, something else that anthropologists know is that the way that different societies classify the world is not universal. There's actually a fair amount of variation in classification systems, which is actually precisely why anthropologists study them. And out of that simple truth, there's actually something very important, which I find quite encouraging which is that, yes, we as human beings are hardwired to classify the world. And yes, in some ways, silos are inevitable. I mean, sometimes when people say they can't stand silos, 
You know, the obvious answer is, oh, abolish silos. Let everyone live in an open-plan office, open-plan mind, and we can all do without silos. Well, that is ridiculous. We need systems to classify the world. But the point is, just because we need systems, we don't need exactly the same system. Systems don't have to be set in stone. Or to put it another way, you don't have to blindly assume whatever system you inherit around you. If you look around the world, you realize there's actually more than one way to organize your life, to organize your sock drawer, to organize your space, to organize institutions. The question isn't, can we abolish silos? It's, are we going to be blindly mastered by our silos and essentially be slaves to our environment or the system we inherit, or can we actually go forth and master them and question them and find ways to avoid doing really dumb things because of the ways we've unthinkingly classified the world. And that all sounds incredibly theoretical, and you're probably thinking, well, what does that mean for everyday life? How does that actually translate into practice? What would it mean for a bank like UBS, or the Bank of England, or the other examples I give in my book of companies that have done really dumb things? And as I looked around America, and then later in Europe, really starting from 2010, I began to see that actually there are some examples of companies and individuals who have actually tried to do some creative things to deal with the silo problem. And the examples I found are, by nature, rather anecdotal, rather random. I'm sure there are many, many more out there. Um, And I can assure you these days I have public relations officials from practically every large company dying to tell me about all their silo-beating success stories. I dare say some of you would like to tell me afterwards. But I'm going to mention a few of them because I think they actually do offer some ways of thinking about this problem and actually dealing with them. One of the first ones I talk about is a company which may be familiar to many of you, which is Facebook. How many of you are on Facebook? Yeah, oh, a lot. That's great. Hey, you're much hipper and trendier than the last lot I spoke to, where about three people put their hand up and look a bit embarrassed. Um, Well, Facebook's fascinating, not so much because of what it's done in terms of changing the way that we communicate with each other in the wider world, but also because of what it's done inside its company. Because Facebook has been engaged in a very extensive experiment in recent years that's tried to deal with the problem of silos. And the reason is really twofold. Facebook know, Mark Zuckerberg and his colleagues know, that the history of technology companies in recent years has been, in some ways, incredibly disappointing. Most, small tech, most tech companies start off as startups, which are small, freewheeling organizations where there aren't any silos because, guess what, they're not big enough. They're all sitting around in a little ring in someone's garage or backyard, eating Chinese takeaway, thinking up brilliant ideas, and far too small and close-knit as a group to have any silos. But then what happens is that they become successful and they grow very, very fast. And they suddenly turn into this big bureaucratic behemoth where there's suddenly very strong silos and tribalism and tunnel vision developing before anyone knows what's been happening. If you look at the story of, say, Xerox, that's one example of that. If you look at the story of Microsoft, there's another example of that. Um, One of my favorite stories is the story of Sony, which... um, Hands up who had a Sony Walkman when they were in their youth. Yeah, me too. 
Have any of you ever wondered why you don't have a Sony Walkman today? It's not just because we don't carry cassettes around anymore, because we live in an internet age, because in the year 1999, Sony actually tried to create an internet digital Walkman. Tried very, very hard. And at that time, every single person who was out there in the consumer electronics world assumed that they were going to succeed. The reason? Well, back then, Sony, as you all know, was incredibly famous for being very good at producing gadgets. Its brand was dominant. It actually had so completely dominated the market for digital listening, for, for um, portable music listening, that the name Walkman actually defined an entire product category, not just the products made by Sony. It also had um, a music label inside its company. It had hardware and software, all sitting inside Sony. So if there was any company that should have gone and actually dominated this field, it should have been Sony. And what happened was that Sony tried. Late 1999, it actually came out with its answer to the digital Walkman. But the problem was that it came out with not one digital Walkman, but two, and then three. And the reason was that Sony was a company like Microsoft or Xerox, which had grown up to create these silos that had become very ossified. And essentially what happened was that each department produced rival competing products and they didn't collaborate. And as a result, they cannibalized each other. And the rest is history, or more specifically, the rest is a story about Steve Jobs spotting an opportunity and jumping in with the iPod, which was an amazingly joined up product. So Facebook saw that and said, yikes, we don't want to become like Microsoft. And the other thing that influenced their thinking was that um, there was, there's an evolutionary psychologist, a very brilliant man who works out of Oxford University called Robin Dunbar, who put out a theory um, a few years ago which said that the number of social relationships that any one individual can cope with, given the size of our brain, is only 150. You know, we're not, we don't, we're not bright enough to think or cope with more people than that. And when social groups swell above that size, you begin to create silos, hierarchies, bureaucracies. And the Facebook engineers originally read that because they wanted to know how many Facebook friends we would all choose to have. But when they read it, they also suddenly went, yikes, when we get above 150, what are we going to do? We don't want to turn into Sony. So what they did was unleash what is, to my mind, one of the most sweeping attempts to silo-bust of any company. And that involves recognizing, first, they need silos in the sense of specialist teams to get stuff done. You can't have everybody writing the same piece of computer code. But they also said, we need to make sure that those specialist teams don't turn into warring tribes. So they have started to do things like rotate people. Very obvious point, but actually quite rare in many large companies. Every six months, people are given a chance to change teams. They pull the engineers together about once every two months and have an all-night coding session called a hackathon where they give them, guess what, Chinese takeaway and tell them to work with somebody else who they don't know on a different project. 
And hackathons happen elsewhere in Silicon Valley, but at Facebook, they really try and break down the normal departments and get them for one night only to work on a different project. When people join Facebook, is anyone here working at Facebook? No, okay. Anyone want to work at Facebook after this? I mean, it's fascinating. Um, they, um, when you join Facebook, it doesn't matter how senior you are, you're basically told that you have to go to boot camp for the first six weeks. And in theory, the boot camp is supposed to teach you how to code. In fact, that's total rubbish because you can learn how to code in the afternoon. What it actually does is force that group of people to become a cohort a group of people who go through the same training experience together, and it's quite intense, and are then encouraged very strongly mm -hmm. to maintain their social ties even after they scatter into different teams. <coughs> and the idea is if you create teams with different nodes and points of contact between the teams, you start to essentially fight against the danger of those teams becoming very rigid and very opposed to each other. They even tell people you're not allowed to refer to anybody else in another team by anything other than their first name. Because the theory is that if you go around saying those idiots in Team 6, you're creating more tribalism. If you say Peter, then you start to see the whole person and actually try to break down that tribalism. Yes, it's gimmicky. Yes, it is Silicon Valley. Yes, in some ways, it looks a bit extreme sometimes. But it's very interesting as a way of trying to break down some of that um, tribalism. And in fact, after I started looking at it, someone pointed out to me that places like Oxford and Cambridge do that almost by default. If you think about the college system and the departmental system and how they overlap and how somebody sitting at high table in an Oxford or Cambridge college can end up sitting almost by accident and having social ties with people in other departments it shows one way to try and break down or blur some of those distinctions. Another quick idea which I tell in my, um, in my book is the story of Cleveland Clinic. Again, a story that in some ways seems to have nothing to do with, say, economists or bankers. Cleveland Clinic is one of the biggest hospitals in the world. And in many ways, it was a very successful hospital because it has very good technical skills, except in one area. About a decade ago, the people who run Cleveland Clinic noticed that when you did consumer surveys about how patients felt about Cleveland Clinic, although they really admired the technical skill of the hospital, they didn't actually like the clinic. Patient satisfaction was very, very low. So they started to dig into it, and they realized that actually there was something very profound occurring in Western medicine, which in some ways was very, very dysfunctional. And the problem is this. When doctors look at medicine, the healthcare system, they tend to work with a mental map, which, like the bankers, is very rigid, but really reflects the world as it existed two or three decades ago and reflects the way that doctors are trained. And essentially, that mental map divides the world up into three buckets. You have a group of people who are paid to cut up other people for a living, and they're called surgeons, very well paid. You have a group of people who do not cut up other people, but treat them, and they're called physicians. And then you have the caregivers, the support staff, 
the nurse, the cleaner, the functionaries, and things like that. And that distinction is very rigid in medicine. And it basically forms the way that almost every hospital in the Western world is set up. But what the doctors at Cleveland Clinic said was, well, hang on a sec. That mental map seems natural and inevitable to doctors because of how they've been trained. What would happen if we were to look at the world through patients' eyes? How ordinary people who are not trained as surgeons experience health? And if you stop and think about it for a moment, and think about the last time you went into a hospital, you wouldn't go in there and say, I'd like to see a cardiothoracic surgeon at these. You'd go there and say, my chest hurts, or I feel a bit sick, I've got a pain in my head. Because human beings, patients, experience medicine according to body parts and ailments. And ordinary people don't make a big distinction necessarily in terms of how they experience hospitals in, by dividing up how you feel mentally, <coughs> spiritually even, and physically in the same way that surgeons do. So what Cleveland Clinic did was embark on a very radical experiment, and they completely turned their mental map of medicine upside down. And they went from a world where they basically divided the hospital into you know, surgery and medicine into a heart unit, a brain unit. And they went from, from a world where they assumed that surgeons did one thing and, say, nurses did another, to a world where even the surgeons were still told to start caring about not just the technical skill, but the mind, body, and soul of the patient. They actually sent the surgeons off to Disneyland to give them lessons in consumer experience. That was quite a shock. And you might think, well, what has that got to do with medicine? So what does that story about medicine have? What has that got to do about anything else? Well, actually, that simple process of turning the map upside down can be applied to many, many different business fields. I mean, if you look at many areas where companies are operating or even government entities are operating and ask, well, okay, this is actually organized according to how the world was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or according to what suits the people offering those services, what would happen if you were to turn that upside down and organize it according to what consumers want or how people see the world? or according to the problems we're trying to solve, that provides a very different perspective and provides another way to try and break out of rigid mental maps that can be very, very dysfunctional. And there's just one last, one last story I'll tell you before I stop, and I was told to talk for about 40 minutes, so I have about three minutes left. But just one other idea, which, um, again, um, I think provides some inkling of what we can do. And this is a story about New York City Hall. New York City Hall, as many of you may know, is a very, very large local government entity, one of the largest in the world. And it's also incredibly bureaucratic and incredibly fragmented into silos. So much so that traditionally you've had, say, the firefighting department that sits in one unit, you've had the education department in another, the housing department in another, etc., etc., and a few years ago, the City Hall officials were asking themselves, how can we provide services better and essentially more effectively without spending more money? And one of the areas they looked at was the question of detecting fire risks. 
Um, some of you may know that New York City, surprisingly, has a big problem that every year a number of residential buildings go up in flames, killing people. And traditionally, using the data from the fire department to predict which buildings are going to go up in flames hasn't been very effective. Because for the most part, when people call 311, which is, is like 999 in America, and report a fire risk, the vast majority of those calls come from very wealthy areas, and the vast majority of fires occur in very poor areas where the immigrants live, and they don't want to call anyone at all. So the firefighting data hasn't been very effective traditionally for finding fires. So a few years ago, a rather innovative group of data scientists came in and said, well, what would happen if we took not the data from the firefighting department, but took data from other, de other departments and mix it together and try to see if that would predict where fires are going to happen? <coughs> so they took data from brick deliveries, mortgage defaults, vermin infestation, poverty, the age of buildings, all kinds of different departments which, which were in different bureaucratic silos, mix them together, and lo and behold, suddenly it turned out to be dramatically more effective at predicting fires. In fact, five times more effective in terms of working out which buildings were going to be fire risks. They went, then went out and did that in many other areas too. Um, my favorite story is the story of yellow grease. Yellow grease is what happens when you go into a New York restaurant and order any food that's been fried. And that leaves the grease in the deep fryer sitting in the, in the restaurant kitchen. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about what happens to that grease. Not very nice to think about. It's a problem that affects all of us, unless you're incredibly macrobiotic. Um, but in theory, restaurants are supposed to um, give that grease to a waste disposal company, and they take it away. In practice, Quite a lot of restaurants don't do that, either because they don't want to pay or because they've watched The Sopranos and they know what waste disposal companies do in New York. <laughs> True story. Um, so what an amazingly large number of restaurants in New York used to do with yellow grease was take that deep fat fryer and go to the nearest manhole and pour it down the manhole. And as a result there's been a lot of yellow grease in the sewage system of New York. Funnily enough, Bloomberg doesn't like to talk about it very much, but that's the reality. And it's been almost impossible for city officials to catch that and stop it because there are only about three or four of the environmental inspectors in City Hall, and there are 25,000 restaurants in New York, and so they had no chance, basically, until they applied the same concept of bringing together different departmental data and trying to map it and actually look at what was going on. And so just like firefighting, about two years ago, they took data from several different departments, put it together, and tried to predict which restaurants were yellow grease dumpers. And then, armed with that information, they went to the biodiesel department, there was an environmental recycling department in the New York City Hall, which had never until then spoken to the restaurant department, and said, why don't you take that data go to the restaurants who are probably offending and suggest to them that instead of pouring it down the manhole cover, they actually sell it to a biodiesel company and get some money for it. And lo and behold, suddenly the yellow grease problem has got a lot better. 
And the fascinating thing about that story is not the fact that actually mixing up data helped them predict what was going to happen. It's the fact that nobody had thought about it before. I mean, it is such an obvious thing to do. And yet, until two or three years ago, no one had done it. And then you come back to the question of why? It's those silos. We're all so shaped by our organizational structures and our mental maps. It's often very hard for us to see not just obvious risks, but very, very obvious opportunities as well. New York City Hall, in some ways, is a shameful example of what happens when you have lots of silos that are very rigid. But it's also very encouraging about what you can actually do to deal with a problem. And it's not just about management consultancy handbooks, although obviously the Department of Management is very useful in that respect. It's also about borrowing the basic principles of anthropology, trying to look at what people are doing, not just what they're saying, trying to take a joined-up view of the world, trying to look at power structures, but above all else, recognizing that if you can just break yourself out of your normal mental rut and go and wonder and try and get a different perspective on the world, if you can just go and physically or mentally think yourself into the mind of the other, then you don't just understand a different way of being, the other. You can then use that different perspective to then look back at yourself and realize not just how weird you can seem to others, because actually we're all pretty weird, although we all think we're normal, but also how trapped we often are in our social and cultural patterns and how we don't need to be. So that's basically the message of my book, which I hope is both encouraging but also a call to arms. So I'll stop there. I congratulate you as a department of silo busting, and I wish you all the very best of luck in your silo busting endeavors. So thank you. So we have about um, half an hour uh, for questions that Gillian will take. Uh, would you please let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the stewards to come by uh, with a microphone for you? And whilst, whilst people are putting their hands up, can I also please note that um, Gillian will be signing uh, copies of her book outside once uh, the entire event is open today? Bernard Casey from LSE, also a PPE graduate of Oxford, and therefore I hope not too much of a silo, uh, or an in-siloed person. I, was, I wonder whether you could comment, in fact, upon um, the way in which academic disciplines are increasingly fragmented, because I always regard being a PPE graduate as giving me a great advantage in life in not being able to do that. I also wondered whether you might comment upon Volkswagen, since that is much in the news, and to what extent were the silos inside, or was the silo Volkswagen and a culture of the institution? Um, well, Volkswagen is actually a very um, relevant story. I mean, I haven't studied Volkswagen to a great, in great detail. I know a lot more about General Motors because General Motors wrote, an, or rather, an extremely long report was written on General Motors, which indicates very clearly the way that silos had developed in General Motors um, and prevented people from not just exchanging crucial information, 
but stepping back and looking at the bigger, bigger picture and trying to understand, you know, whether what was going on made sense. And it seems to me at Volkswagen that there was, again, a real problem of tunnel vision amongst people, the people who were, you know, busy doing the environmental stuff or was, were detached from the, from the engineers and vice versa. And there wasn't anybody at the top stepping back and saying, does this make sense? You know, it was a real failure of common sense, again. So I think, it's, um, I think it's very relevant. I think you asked about the academic world as well. And the academic world today seems to me to be kind of caught in a tragic trap because in some ways, you know, academics and journalists should be the great silo-busting conscience of society. You know, they are people who are paid to try and join up the dots and, you know, take an overview in a world where we are ever... Con- Ever, you know, there's a constant temptation to be sucked into these intellectual ghettos, particularly in a world where consumers are given the chance of having customised information and customised news. But the tragedy of academia today is that although in some parts of the academic world there are individuals and institutions that are trying to take a joined-up view of different disciplines and recognising that you need to do that to be innovative... Um, the academic tenure structure in many parts of the university system actually does not reward that. If anything, it actually encourages people to stay stuck in a specialist groove as fast as they can, as deeply as they can, and to not move out of that for fear that if you take too many risks as an academic and try and jump across boundaries or have a generalist approach to anything, you won't get up that academic tree quickly. I mean, some people have tried to break that down. Um, you know, I think that this problem about tenure track and how professions reward, you know, academics um, has been incredibly critical for economics, and I write about that in my book. Um, you know, the tribalism of the economic profession um, has been, in my view, a significant problem in recent years, but also most, most academic disciplines. You know, George Soros and the um, INET... Um, foundation has tried in recent years to counter that by offering disciplines and you know, grants and you know, various pots of money to people who are willing to try and jump across those boundaries and look at economics with more of a sociologist or anthropology perspective or historical perspective. But the problem is, in academia, you can give somebody a pot of money to do a research project for a few years, but that doesn't necessarily lead to tenure track and doesn't necessarily mean that they get respected by their peers. So... That is, in my mind, one of the biggest problems today. I realize I'm talking to a bunch of university um, students and professors who probably know more about this than me, so please feel free to disagree if you do. Hello. Um, I am a journalist also with a background in anthropology. I'm here, by the way. It's right. Hey. <laughs> right, right. And I was wondering if, after you started your research, whether it made you notice any really obvious silos at the FT, mm-hmm. and if so, what have you done to try and break them down since? Yeah, that's a very fair question. Um, I mean, I have written about this before. Um, I happen to think that one of the reasons why the media world was slow to spot the looming financial crisis before 2007 was the fact that media was subject to silos too. And for the most part, the people who were writing about economics and doing high-status economics reporting jobs were different from the people who were writing about the grubby parts of the financial markets. And in the case of the FT, when I, I had previously worked in the economics team, 
um, of the FT. And um, one of the first times I started thinking hard about the structure of the financial world and economics world and the problems of this fragmentation was when I moved to the Lex team, which is one of the parts of the paper which actually does take a quite a joined-up view of, of the world and a joined-up view of capital structures of companies. And I subs subsequently went to the capital markets team at the FT, and one of the things that we had in 2004 and 5 was we had a sort of high-status economics team that sat in a very nice office overlooking the river near, near the editor's office. And then we had the capital markets team, which sat at right the other end of the building um, in a sort of you know, lowly bunker overlooking the garbage cans. And for the most part, we didn't talk to each other very much. And that was certainly something which prevented us from having a particularly joined-up view of the world. I mean, at many other news organizations, it was much, much worse. So something we started trying to do, really from 2006 onwards, was to try and put our heads together and to take a much more joined-up approach to looking at what was happening in finance. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why, in some respects, our coverage was a bit more prescient than some of our rivals. Um, but it's not a battle you ever win. I mean, media groups, businesses, government institutions can never conquer silos or the dangers of that in one fell swoop. You have to constantly keep asking yourself. And at the FT, we are constantly looking at ourselves and saying, well, do we have the optimal structures? Can we actually report the world? Um, I think we are actually in a much better position than many rivals to avoid falling into silo temptations because we're smaller, um, we're more um, reporter-driven, not editor-driven, and we tend to be much more freewheeling and entrepreneurial. We're a very flat structure. Um, I look at some of our big, biggest rivals in America that I will not name, but I see structures which are fantastically siloized and run almost like Citigroup, frankly, you know, big bureaucratic structures where every journalist is told to swim in their own lane and there are constantly turf wars erupting and, you know, Funnily enough, it's one of the reasons why I can hire people from them. <laughs> I won't say anything else if anyone else knows who I'm talking about, but, you know, it doesn't mean in any way that we're perfect. But one, thing, one last thing I will add, which is, and I feel this extremely strongly, is, you know, if you ask me what journalism today is all about, it really is about silo-busting. I mean, that is our core mission as journalists, or it should be. Because we live in a world today where everybody who consumes news is constantly being sucked into bespoke information ghettos and tunnels. And it's very easy and tempting to be sucked into information ghettos and tunnels. I mean, it's like eating candy. You know, you start it, it becomes addictive. Um, and it's everywhere. We don't even notice we're being sucked into these information tunnels the whole time. And yet the more that we're sucked into information tunnels, the more that most of us know uneasily that we miss understanding what's really happening in the world and we miss understanding the shocks that keep erupting and basically you know, cause such havoc if we're not careful. And so if we are going to be journalists and do our job and show people how the world works and live up to the mission of being journalism, it really is about silo-busting. And I won't give you the rest of my pet speech, but I feel that very strongly. <laughs> Gentleman there. Yes, hello. Uh, Robert Home, Professor of Land Management at Anglia Ruskin University, who's been moving between silos all my life. Um, slight odd thing about your lecture is you never defined a silo. 
Um, I'm sure you've got a definition, mm -hmm. and I'd be interested to hear it. And I'm interested in how do these silos emerge, first degree in history? Where did it all start? And that leads you into theories of path dependence mm -hmm. and historical institutionalism, which is yeah. another way of saying it's all in the DNA, so that every institution or silo carries with it its origins. <coughs> And if yes. they're unlucky, it stays with them for too long. Yeah. Just to invite no, you good to point. And thank you for asking that question, because indeed I did fail to define a silo, and I should have done. Um, I mean, the technical word silo, siros, comes from the Greek meaning corn pit. And as that suggests, it refers to agricultural structures where you store grain. And um, it was really in the sort of first half of the 20th century that the military um, establishment started using the word silo to refer to weapons, um, we weapons um, storage units. And then management consultants got involved and used it to refer to these uh, sort of semi-detached, inward-looking structures you get inside companies. So it's really about being in a ghetto, a stovepipe, a box, whatever image you want to use. Um, and I use the word silo instead of stovepipe or box or bucket, actually. Um, one of the hedge funds I write about in the book talks about buckets and um, bucket busting, um, which actually I like instead of silo busting because you can say it better. But um, I think most people don't know what bucket busting means. But the reason I use the word silo is because it's found in most languages, um, apart from Japanese, where it's translated as um, takutsubo, which means octopus pot. Uh, hi, I'm Andrea Paletti. I'm a first-year PhD student management. But like, what, I, what I notice uh, in uh, your, your presentation is that this silos seems to be more an aspect of a big reality, that is bureaucracy. I've studied bureaucracy according to the Weber point of view, and... Uh, Bureaucracy are something that you cannot change uh, with some best practice. This is a problem that you will have then in the future. Probably you can change something, a transformation in the company that can start working probably for five years, but then you will have the silos uh, phenomenon again in ten years. Thanks. Um, yes. I mean, when I say that it's a never-ending struggle to control or curb silos, I mean that. Um, and there is this great, you know, unresolvable conflict in modern society that as we globalize, as we consolidate, as we go look for efficiencies of scale, there is this tendency to create bigger and bigger organizations often that become more and more bureaucratic. Um, but you don't have to be very big to have silos. I mean, you can be sort of a medium-sized company and still be fragmented. Um, if you're looking at it from a point of view of small companies, you know, what I point out is to them is, firstly, you may yet grow up and become big if you're successful. And often, if you're successful, that's a, that's a time when you don't ask about your fundamental structures and challenge them because you think everything's going really well. Um, but more importantly, if you are a smallish company or a company that's trying to be not too bureaucratic, um, you have a chance to go and, t you know, make hay at the expense of others because one person's silo is another person's opportunity. And for every Sony which fails to invent the digital Walkman, there is Apple and Steve Jobs and the iPod. And for every big bank which is doing really dumb things because of its silos, um, there is probably a, a canny investor, often a hedge fund or someone else, 
was making money at the expense of that bank. So, you know, it's a trade-off. Actually, no, that's wrong. It's not a trade-off. It's more a case that this, this problem exists and it needs to be, you know, recognised, addressed and discussed. Hi, um, I'm, I'm Deborah James. I'm an anthropologist here at LSE. I'm interested in um, the sort of angle that you're suggesting, which is that if people took a more enlightened view and, and sort of thought outside the box, many of these problems could be solved. But, but I've read quite a lot of anthropological studies, especially of financialized institutions, which seem to suggest that there's almost a sort of um, inevitable process whereby financialization is leading to you know, the downfall of many and, and the growth of a very few as having a, a lot of wealth. So what's your perspective on those kinds of studies of, of anthropology and, and what they can tell um, the broader world, as opposed to simply, for example, the, the study that anthropologists are interested in classification and maybe this is imposing certain kinds of restrictions. What about when anthropologists go and study these, these economic institutions, these companies, and often seem to have a very sinister, they seem to p p pick up quite a sinister angle on, on what is going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm certainly not saying that anthropology is a magic wand that companies can just kind of buy in a sprinkling of anthropology and become all-seeing and all-knowing and all-wise. Um, for what it's worth, I think that you know, anthropologists actually have a lot to say that can be very useful for government institutions. Um, I mean, my book, in some ways, is a job creation scheme for anthropologists. Um, and if you look at America today, you do see, actually, interestingly, a, a lot of you know, big companies today trying to bring in anthropologists, originally because they wanted to understand their consumers, um, but then to actually increasingly understand themselves. Um, I guess a key point I'm making is that, you know, I believe, and you may or may not agree with this, but when you study anthropology, um, it, whatever you then go on and do, it sort of changes the way that you look at the world. And it sort of puts a chip in your brain, which means that you can never take anything entirely at face value ever again. And you're constantly trying to deconstruct, you know, language and deconstruct social patterns and looking at, you know, who's actually interested in preserving the status quo. Um, you know, because, I mean, I write a lot about Pierre Bourdieu in my book. You know, and Bourdieu always made the point that the way that an elite stays in power is not just by controlling the means of production, to be unfashionably Marxist, um, but by, you know, shaping the way that we think. And they do that not necessarily through any deliberate plot, but because the social patterns and conventions that arise are just very convenient for them and maintain their position, and it's very easy just to reproduce them. Um, so in that sense, what happens inside banks is often very um, sinister, if you like. Um, you know, and to, to go back to UBS again, um, I firmly believe that one of the reasons why nobody really saw what was happening inside the silo of banking before 2007 or 8 was because it really wasn't in the interests of the bankers making subprime mortgage CDOs to stand up and tell everyone and translate what was going on. And it wasn't in their interests to go forth and tell the risk managers how much they were missing in terms of dangers. You know, there was a social pattern and convention which was very, very convenient. Um, and so, yes, you can say that was basically a sinister pattern that enabled the elite, the financiers, to stay in power. 
and you can look more widely at society and say, well, if there'd be more people, more politicians with a bit of anthropology training, and frankly more journalists, we might have asked hard questions. But at the same time, the reason why those patterns erupted was partly because of this silo problem I keep talking about. And so standing back and saying, okay, you know, we have this, in the case of UBS, this ideology that free markets are wonderful, financial technology is far too complicated for ordinary people to understand, and we have this, you know, this pattern, this acceptance that is entirely normal and inevitable that big banks are arranged into tribal groups which all want to kill each other, and somehow it's kind of normal that the CDO desk doesn't talk to anybody else and no one really knows what's going on. But we don't have to accept that. You know, whether it's bank managers or bank shareholders or ordinary voters can step back and say, well, hang on a sec, why? Why do we have this pattern? I happen to believe for what it's worth, you know, a dose of anthropology, and that's cynicism and the questioning and the reluctance to accept things at face value is something that actually should be injected into almost every course. I think anthropology is a bit like salt. If you add it to food, it makes every other discipline much richer. Including management. At the uh, front and then at the back. Thanks, Gillian. Uh, my name is John Hughes. I, I guess one of my personal silos is I sit here uh, as a member of the team for the LSE Council. A question about governments. If you were to be asked by both, but separately by the US and Chinese governments about how they should, what should they do to avoid silos to make wise foreign policy interventions. Wow. What advice would you give them? Well, funnily enough, um, various parts of the Western military establishment um, on both sides of the Atlantic have shown great interest in my book, um, and I'm going off to speak to some of them um, in the coming months, um, because they know they have a big problem with silos, and, you know, they have a rigid bureaucratic structure. Um, and, you know, the foreign policy world is very, very fragmented. And there's a real inability right now to join up the dots and look at the consequences of a number of different, you know, foreign policy initiatives and, you know, aspects. I mean, you know, what's happened in Syria is a classic, tragic example of the failure of joined-up thinking in every sense. So what would I suggest they do apart from buy my book in large quantities um, and hire lots of anthropologists and create lots of jobs for anthropologists. Um, I think that they could start by trying to bring in people from different departments and get them sitting around the, the same table on an equal footing. That would be a good place to start. And try to think through the different aspects of what's happening, say, with the military and foreign policy side of things. Um, that would be a good place to start. Do you have any suggestions? No, that's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting mm. here. Wow. <laughs> Hi. Um, thank you so much for your talk. I really much in, I enjoyed it very much. But one thing that it left me wondering, and I apologize in advance if this sounds like an overly cynical view of human nature, um, but what role accountability and ownership also play in, in processes like these. So, for example, when you're talking about the Cleveland Clinic, you know, perhaps it isn't the fact that the very smart surgeons and the very smart nurses and the very smart physicians don't, it doesn't occur to them to think about patient experience, but simply that's not in their job description. They're not paid to do that. They have busy lives. They have a family yeah. they want to eat dinner with at 6 p.m. Um, and especially as you get into larger and larger institutions, it becomes more of a problem of diffusion of responsibility rather than 
uh, a mental structure that prevents them from seeing the issue in the first place. I mean, in the case of hospitals in America, um, there's really three things going on which are problematic. Um, the first one is particular to America, and less so in the UK, which is that um, people say that bankers have an eat-what-you-kill system, where basically whatever trade you get, you get paid on with your bonus. Well, not quite, but you know, it's an eat-what-you-kill system. Um, doctors in America tend to have an eat-what-you-treat system, which is that they're very fragmented and they get paid according to whatever they do, each specialist, and they get their fees. So guess what? They're incentivized to all of them do as many procedures as possible. And if you ever wondered why American healthcare was so expensive, it's partly because of this duplication problem. Um, so that's part of the problem. Another problem is good old-fashioned power structures. I mean, in most hospitals, the roles of department head of medicine and head of surgery are the two most important jobs in a hospital. Um, you usually have a CEO sitting over it, but those are the two big plum jobs. So when Cleveland Clinic announced it was going to reorganize itself, you know, it had basically a big problem of power to deal with. You know, how do you take those power structures away from those two key doctors? And, I mean, I won't bore you, bore you with the details of what they did, but they managed to do it, but it wasn't easy. And when they then created their Brain Institute, um, they initially went to get, you know, a, they were looking for a famous brain person who they assumed within the hierarchies of medicine would be a famous neurosurgeon. So they said, let's go out and get a famous Nobel Prize winning neurosurgeon to run our new Brain Institute. And they found somebody, and they almost immediately had big problems, because when the neurosurgeon found out that he was going to be working on the same level as a neurologist and the neuroradiologist and the psychologist, they were all going to be on the same level, he didn't take the job. And they ended up having to look around. It was actually very hard to find someone to run that new unit. And they ended up turning to a neuroradiologist who sat inside the hospital, which, I mean, I don't think any of you are doctors here, but that is pretty radical within the, um, within the, you know, the structure of medicine. It's a bit like putting you know, anthropologists in charge of economists. You know? um, but you know, that's kind of, that was the kind of you know, change they made. The other problem, of course, is training. Because in America, um, when the wider medical establishment saw what Cleveland Clinic was doing, um, they were pretty upset. And in fact the um, bodies that train surgeons and doctors, physicians, said, you know, we can't accept anyone coming from Cleveland Clinic if you've mashed up all these labels. So in the end, what Cleveland Clinic had to do was actually reimpose some shadow vestige of the old divisions um, purely for training purposes, just so that their doctors could get the right pieces of paper. And it was kind of irritating for them, but actually it had quite a benefit in that um, what they say is that because they are now organized by body parts and ailments, and yet they have to have shadows of the old structure inside those departments, it sort of reminds them always that there's more than one way to divide up the world. You know, you can kind of play this mental game of, you know, how would it look from this perspective or that perspective? You know, as a surgeon, do I want to go and talk to other surgeons? Or since I'm a neurosurgeon, do I want to talk to people who worry about the brain? And it's kind of obvious in a way, but little things like the fact that, you know, they go around in teams, teams now with, you know, the surgeons and doctors, you know, starts to change behavior a bit. Not a magic wand, but it does help. I think I may be next. Um, Sophia, Sophia Cannon. 
I'm a barrister. Well, I've just left the bar, and I also appear on BBC Papers. Right. One of the interesting things that I've noted is that there's not quite been a, um, a scandal involving barristers because of the way we're trained. Like doctors, we have a touchstone, and that is obviously our standards and equally our integrity. Mm. So we're often asked that question, do you represent somebody who you know is guilty? Well, of course we don't. We would be professionally embarrassed. Now, the question I want to ask is that I've noticed that this week or this month they've set up the Banking Standards Board in the UK. Now, what is your view on that and whether it will be able to break down the silos that I've seen in banking, using the bar as an example? Yeah. I must say, I think that one of the biggest challenges in banking is to introduce basic common sense. And by what, what I mean by that is an ability to break out of the tunnel vision whereby a banker scurrying around thinking, well, this makes sense within my own little narrow incentive whether, whether or not I get a bonus. But it doesn't make sense if you step back and look at it in wider context. Um, and to do that, you need transparency and you need a diversity of view, points of view. And you need people from outside that little silo to be able to look in and actually question basic things. I mean, all the things that didn't happen at, say, UBS before, um, because no one really knew what the UBS bankers were doing. Um, and people say that, you know, sunlight is a great form of, you know, great guard against corruption. It's also one way to get common sense. Um, so I think talking about diversity and transparency and second opinions you know, is, a, is one way to go into that. I mean, yes, they can do all these other things to do with banking standards and make bankers take exams, that's good. Yes, they can look at how they're paid, that's very important. But thinking about how you engender that basic common sense, I think, is also very important too. Um, hello. Um, thank you for your speech. My name is Cristina Cabezas. I'm a philologist, a communication practitioner. For the past six years, I've been working in Barcelona in the areas of innovation, education, and creativity. And all these areas always approaches the speech from the designed point of view, which is introducing uh, innovation strategies in the companies to break all the mental plans, processes. On your opinion, who should lead or influences these classical structures like BP financial organizations to make these changes? Well, obviously, I think anthropologists should have a great role. <laughs> no, but um, I mean, I would say a range of people. You know, it's back to getting a diversity of views and trying to get, you know, time and again to imagine. You know, if a Martian came down and saw what we were doing with fresh eyes, you know, without the legacy of the past, would it make sense? Um, and, you know, as I said before, disruptors tend to be people who jump across boundaries and break down boundaries. And, you know, it's not so much about thinking outside the box. It's about reshuffling the boxes and recognizing that there are things that fall between the cracks of the boxes. Um, and again, to go back to Sony, I mean, the problem with Sony was that, you know, it had hardware in one box, software in another box, and it had media content in another box. So you had three separate boxes. Um, what Steve Jobs did at Apple, 
you know, being a disruptor, was basically say, let's force people together and not have that software-hardware um, content split. And so if you look at the innovation that went into them thinking firstly about the iPod and thinking about how they created something which actually had not one stage of music delivery but two, you know, you load up your songs on your Mac and then you download that onto a little hardware device which is tiny. Um, and it had to be a two-stage process then because you couldn't get enough computing power in that little iPod. Um, so that was a very innovative set of ideas that jumped across software and hardware and content. But iTunes was something which had nothing to do with that little kind of process of making a physical metal box, you know, tiny thing. You know, dreaming up iTunes was entirely different again, and that jumped across many more um, boundaries. And it's not something that Sony could have done thinking just in those, in, those, um, in those silos. So, as I say, for every Sony there is, or every, you know, dead Walkman, there is an iPod. I think we're coming towards the end of our time, but I'm going to take a last couple of questions, I think. So the lady over there and the gentleman over here, and then, okay, three, and then the gentleman in the middle over there, if we can get a microphone to him too. But can, we, Hello. can you ask the questions together, and maybe, Julian, are you happy answering multiple yeah, questions? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm a graduate of the LSE. I studied history and international relations here, and now I work in big data with a team of engineers. So I have... I'm living this experience of the silo effect, um, not only in my company where we think in technology in a way that's very different to how I was taught to, to think here, but second, we have a lot of clients who are trying to use data to do their own internal knowledge management system. So some of the, the FTSE 500 companies in a knowledge management economy or in a knowledge economy are trying to figure out ways to intelligently identify experts within mm -hmm. their organizations. And some of this is done by, you know, do we look for actual individual employees or groups of communities of up to 150 subject matter experts? Or do we try to design a knowledge management system that's aligned with our strategy in terms of our priorities, the outcomes we want to have, the known problems that our business or industry faces? So I just wonder if you could comment a bit on that in terms of this, how, the, how your, your thinking relates to the people and the knowledge and the outcomes that we want to put into our economy. Okay, I can't answer your question directly, but here's a couple of observations. Firstly, the really good news about data and big data and computing power is that it can potentially break down silos in some amazing ways. And what New York City Hall did with its predictive data, what many you know, private and public sector institutions are doing with predictive data in terms of mashing up different data sources um, can be incredible. And the reason is partly the fact that, you know, data doesn't necessarily have any preset boundaries or ideas about how it has to be classified. You know, you can actually change the classification system of data. Um, and even better, data doesn't have a union. And that matters because one of the problems in breaking down silos in New York City Hall is that you have a lot of unions that don't want those silos to be broken down. You, know, you can't just rename the firefighters um, and tell them they're going to be something else because you have a union. I mean, as I say, we just talked about hospitals. Data doesn't have a union. And so what New York City Hall kind of did in the end is try and use the data mixing to then force change amongst human beings. The bad news about data though, is that it only breaks down silos if human beings who are actually controlling and setting the data 
are willing to be innovative because the sheer quantity of data that can be out there makes it like everything else very easy for people to assume they have a way of classifying that data and it's all preset and basically everything gets put into rigid buckets early on and no one questions it. And in some ways that problem is particularly serious because traditionally, due to academic silos, the people who handled data, the computer scientists, were numbers people and they weren't used to thinking about social patterns and you know, psychology in human beings. What is incredibly exciting today is that certainly in America, and I hope in the UK too, but I don't, don't know much about it, there is a new movement developing inside universities and companies to try and create sort of um, touchy-feely data scientists who can think about humans and computer bytes. And people like Sandy Pentland at MIT um, have this you know, whole social physics drive which is trying to bring together, frankly, anthropology and computer science and put it together. Um, very big movement. If I was in anthropology today and trying to look for an area to do research projects, um, I would be jumping all over that. Um, but, um, you know, there is an attempt to fight it, but that's, you know, it won't happen, data, as a silo-busting tool, it won't happen unless humans get involved too. We're going to take another that's couple of questions, if that's okay. So at the front and, the, and the, in the middle. Yes, my name is Peter. I'm a consultant from Denmark. Um, I've, uh, I've once visited a, an Indian hospital in Bangalore where uh, they could do incredibly cheap surgery simply because they, um, they said that surgeons should do surgery almost like a, a factory, uh, like a McDonald's-inspired uh, uh, assembly line, uh, where everybody was very, very specialized. And hearing about the Cleveland Clinic, I can't help thinking that there is... There's a contradiction to the mm -hmm. fundamental theory that, that specialization is what creates lower prices and an efficient economy. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say on the issue of specialization and efficiency, I mean, the reality is that if you want to get jobs done quickly and efficiently, you know, extreme specialization is often very good. And in the modern world, you know, there is a very powerful tendency for companies and government institutions to become more and more specialized and siloized because of this pressure to cut resources. And, you know, if a company has to cut its budget, it's going to put people into very clearly demarked, demarcated roles. Um, it will knock out any slack in the system. And the slack is often what, people, what allows people to roam or to connect or to collide or people to jump across boundaries. Um, you know, companies like Facebook can do all of their kind of clever ways of breaking down silos because they have quite a lot of slack in the system, and they admit that quite freely. Um, so there's a tension. You know, silos can make people hyper-efficient in the short term, but with a potential long-term cost. I'm Edward Callum. I work in leadership and sustainability. Um, I love your column in the FT. I read it every week. And I wonder, may I ask you, how do you decide what to write about? And, and how long <laughs> does it take you to put together one of those beautiful, interesting, creative, disruptive pieces? Well, thank you. Well, flattery will get you... I won't, we won't get you a free, 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 free FT subscription, but hey... <laughs> First of all, thank you for buying the FT. You're helping to pay my salary indirectly, so thank you. Please all do that. Um, how do I write? I don't know. I mean, um, 
well, my other half is sitting over there, so he can probably give you a better idea because it usually involves, um, you know, wandering around the kitchen thinking, oh, God, what am I going to write this week? And stumbling on something. But, you know, I mean, journalists are basically like um, intellectual vacuum cleaners come magpies. You know, we go around hoovering up other people's ideas, you know, shiny objects. We put them in our, in our little kind of, you know, storage cabinet mentally. We leave them for a while, and then later on we try and join up the dots and make connections. Um, the other metaphor I use is we go around the world collecting threads and from all over the place, and then we try and weave a tapestry and try and explain it to people. And so I get threads from everywhere, personally, and I'm very grateful for everyone who gives me threads. They usually do so unintentionally. And, um, you know, I do that. But I'm always open to new ideas, so please write to me. <laughs> May I say that's evident in, in your wonderful book, uh, how it is that you've gone around the world and interpreted through this anthropological gaze. And I, I hope some of that subtlety and depth has come across in the lecture today, which has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to us once again.